Now, I want you to imagine this letter coming to the church in Philippi. It wasn't a huge church by our measure of churches today. It wasn't a mega church. It was probably a very small church meeting in the house of Lydia. And this letter is being written and is now being read to the people in Philippi, a people who were living amongst uh, a culture that is so radically different than their own, and their own hearts are being transformed and being renewed after Christ's heart and their minds after Christ's mind. So here in the way that those first believers must have heard these words, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi, with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you, all making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this is your word. We have confessed it. We have read it. Lord, help us to see what is in this word for us as your people in the 21st century. And what was in this word for the first century? Having heard your word, may it transform our heart. May it transform our lives by the presence of your spirit. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. In 1975, in Krakow, Poland, work began on a 102.5 meter building called the Unity Tower. Steel beams were hoisted into place and bolted, and things began to take shape as the structure began to rise over Krakow. However, in 1981, progress came to a grinding halt due to economic problems and political unrest. And the project was eventually shut down. In the years following, the Unity Tower entered into such a complex legal limbo that nothing could be done with the structure. So this large ugly metal frame loomed over the city, rusting and decaying. It became an eyesore that the locals began to refer to as the Skeletor Building, or the Skeletor Building, named after the comic nemesis of He-Man, a popular cartoon of the day. Till this day, though, there have been plans to improve the site, or to implode the building, the legal complexity prevents it from happening. So it just sits there. Is this object of scorn in the middle of a town unable to be finished because of the baggage and the complexity around this building? Why do I tell you that? Because sometimes I think that we look at ourselves that way. As believers in Christ, we look at our progress in the faith, or sometimes lack of progress in the faith, and many times we're our own worst critic. And we think we, we have too much baggage and, and we're too complex a people that God is going to one day say to us, okay, I'm done. I'm done. You've had 70 times 7 chances and, and it's over. I'm moving on to better projects. Now we would never want to say that out loud, right? We don't, we know that that's not true. 
Scripture has testified that that's not true, but that doesn't change the power of our feelings pointing us in the wrong direction. And when our feelings point us in the wrong direction, Scripture has an antidote for that. When it tells us that he who began a good work in us will be faithful to complete that work. But how can we know that God will be faithful to us both individually and corporately as his people? Well, three things we see in this passage. He started the work in and among us. He continues to show us the fruit of the work he started, and he finishes the work he began. So let's start at the beginning. He started the work in and among us. Before I go any further, I I want to be clear. We have all grown up with people who didn't make it. We all went to youth groups or churches with people who eventually came to denounce Jesus Christ. Those people are spoken of in 1 John 2.19. If they never come back to Christ, this is what's true of them. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. There will be some people who do live amongst the people of God and who look like the people of God. We know the parable of the four soils. But we're talking about believers in this passage. We're talking about people who, who's, who have a faith that is authored by God. And those who have a faith that is authored by God, they do persevere. What Philippians 1.6 is calling us to is, is to draw our confidence from the evidence that God has started a work within us. For the Philippians, the beginning of their faith and their community goes back to a vision. Uh, you can turn in your Bibles if you want or you simply listen, but Acts 16, 6 through 10 shares that vision of how Philippi began. It says, And they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And when they had come to Mysia, they attempted to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So passing by Mysia, they went down to Troas, And a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there, urging him and saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. Now Macedonia's seat is Philippi. Now the first thing to note about this passage is this, is the presence of the Trinity. Did you catch it? Listen again. Having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia, they attempted to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. Immediately, we sought to go into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. So Philippi was leading city of Macedonia, and it was God who had prompted Paul to preach the gospel in Macedonia. Why is that significant to us? Well, sometimes I think that that we start trusting in our emotions. We can get to the point where we think that, well, I started this work. I started this work in me. And when we begin to think about God's work in me as being different than Jesus's work in me, as being different than the Holy Spirit's work in me, and we begin to divide the Trinity up like that, all kinds of strange thoughts come into our mind. We don't think about them as unified God. Here's what I mean. 
Did you ever go over to that friend's house? Maybe you spent the night. And the dad just kind of looked at you like, why are you here? Sitting at my table, eating my food, and breathing my air. Didn't speak much, kind of a gruff guy, moved on. You knew that the son liked you, but you weren't quite sure about the father. And sometimes I think that we, we sing songs like Jesus Loves Me, and we realize that Jesus loves us, but sometimes I believe that we think that the, to- the father just tolerates us. And that is dangerous thinking. Because John 3.16 says, God so loved the world that he gave his only son. This wasn't a situation where Jesus said, look, 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 I see worth in them, let me go redeem them. And the father said, oh, have you seen him? Have you really looked at him? Are you sure you want to? Okay, if you want to go do that, fine. But I still think they stink. That's not God. If that's how God plays out in your mind, as some overbearing, gruff father, that's not the God of Scripture. The God of Scripture, the Father of Scripture, is just as much involved in the founding of your faith as is Jesus Christ and his Holy Spirit. When we divide those three, there is a very big danger of believing things about God that aren't true. When we believe things about God that aren't true, we can get ourselves into some very depressive and difficult thinking that just draws us away from God. If God started the work in you, you can be sure that Jesus and the Spirit are both pleased that that work was started. Moving along. As you read about how Paul and his companions journeyed to Philippi, you begin to meet some of the earliest members of the church. Look in Acts 16, 13 through 15. It says, And on the Sabbath day, we went outside to the gate to the riverside, where we supposed there was a place of prayer. And we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods, who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized and her household as well, she urged us saying, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she, and she prevailed upon us. So Lydia and her household and the ladies there were the first converts in Philippi. And her house became a center of refreshment and eventually we believe worship for the early church in Philippi. This is probably what Paul's alluding to in verses 3 through 5 of Philippians 1 when he says, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day, this day, the day he met Lydia, until now. From the very first day, God worked in and through Lydia to refresh Paul and his companions. And he reflects on that, and it brings him joy. But it wasn't just Lydia. We have a dramatic story of salvation of the Philippian jailer. And we also have the story of a slave girl from whom a a demonic spirit was cast. Now, we don't know if she was part of that early church, but we we can pretty much guess she probably had something to do with it. 
Whatever the case, this is how God started the work of salvation in the lives of this motley crew of individuals that became the church at Philippi. And it gave Paul joy to remember the story of how their faith began and how the church was launched. What is your story? What is your story? How did God draw you to himself? Do you see it as a series of coincidences? Do you see it as the moment where you just kind of pulled yourself up by your own bootstraps and kind of willed yourself to follow after Jesus? Or do you look beneath the surface of the coincidences to see the hand of God moving you through who you met and where you were, the situation which brought you face to face with Jesus? Perhaps the story is a dramatic story of of a rebel heart manifesting itself through open rejection of, of God's ways and then being brought to your knees like Paul. That's Paul's story. Or perhaps it's not flashy at all. It's not a story of a rebel heart. Perhaps it's covering itself with niceness, but being brought into the kingdom to understand that salvation is more than being and doing nice things. It's about a dead heart coming to life. And perhaps you grew up in that home of faith where you moved from niceness and good things to your heart coming alive. From a slave to sin to obedience to Christ. That's the story of Timothy, who's also mentioned here. Either way, we can draw great courage from seeing the hand of God in our own story, either pulling us from the depths or pulling us into a covenant family. And it's a story that we should tell ourselves, but it's a story we should tell our children and our grandchildren because it's a testimony that lives longer than we. So we also see this, second point. He continues to show us the fruit of the work he started. This is the in-between part. The NIV renders this, carry it on to completion. Here in the ESV it's rendered, will bring it to completion. The words carry it on and bring it to are indicating the ongoing action of redemption. We call this progressive sanctification. We can be encouraged by seeing how God sovereignly brought us to himself, but it is also encouraging to see how he has changed us. Now, right now, if you go onto social media, you see the 10-year challenge, the decade challenge, right? People are posting pictures from 2009 and 2019. I'm not doing that. I'm afraid of what that's going to look like, just just be honest with you. But you can see how you compare where someone started and where they are now, and you can see the, the change. But over that 10 years, sometimes it's really hard to see the change in us. Here's what I find absolutely fascinating about the church in Philippi. Think back to how it began. Normally when Paul went into a city, Where's the first place he went? He went to the the synagogue. Why didn't he go to the synagogue in Philippi? We can assume there was no synagogue. So if there's no synagogue, that means that there are not at least 10 faithful men there to constitute a synagogue. So if there's not a synagogue, there's a provision for the women of faith to gather by the river and pray. That's why it says in Acts that they supposed that there was a place of prayer there by the river. So these women had gathered to pray. 
Now, it's been 10 years since Paul has been in Philippi. And what's really encouraging about that is look at verse 1 of Philippians chapter 1. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and the deacons. Not only are there saints in Christ Jesus at Philippi, there's more than just the, the two or three or four or five that they began with. There are overseers and deacons. That means that 10 years ago, there were not enough men to have a synagogue. 10 years later, there are enough men who are growing in their faith and are deep enough in their faith in Jesus Christ that they can be overseers and deacons in God's church. God has provided an incredible leadership there that was absent before. God is working in Philippi. Now, they may not be a megachurch, but God is working to grow them. And sometimes I think we think of church growth in, the, in, the, in terms of numbers. And that's good. But we can't ignore the fact of church growth being growth of the people of the church in their faith and the deepening of their discipleship. And here the discipleship is so deep that they now have leaders in their church. Okay, that should be encouraging to the church, but what about us individually? Sometimes it's very difficult to see how far we've grown in our faith. And one thing we can point, about the, uh, point out about the passage here is the you here is plural. It's not singular. Why is there a plural you? Yeah, he's referring to everybody. But I think there's the importance of the plural you. The plural you is this. We need each other. If he began a good work in us, and he's going to be faithful to complete it, we need the church. We need those long friendships with one another. So that when I get into the weeds and I think, I'm having a bad month, and and I I don't think that God's ever used me in in my life. And someone can sit across the table from me who knows me well and has watched my life and say, that's just foolishness. I have seen God use you, and I've seen God use you in mighty ways, and probably in some ways that, that he has, you've never noticed yourself. And we need that from one another. These words aren't just spoken in that Western American Lone Ranger sort of faith that it's me and Jesus and the internets. Look, it's not wrong to watch church on the internet, but God has called us to be in a community of believers for a reason. And this is one of those reasons. For us to be sitting here trying to figure out, have I really grown? in my faith without either people to pour into us or people to to look at us and say you have grown it's very difficult without people to challenge us to continue to grow it's extremely difficult there are times when we can look back at our lives and we can see things like journals where we have chronicled our faith Um, And other times, there are things that happen that show us just how far we've grown. Quite by accident, I was going through some old tapes 
that my mom had given me some cassette tapes. Remember cassette tapes? I was going through cassette tapes and I was listening to some different tapes, various mixtapes I made. Remember mixtapes? Those are great. Uh, And I came across my voice on a tape. I'm like, what is this? This is very curious. So I started listening. And the more I listened, the more depressed I got. Because this was me having a phone conversation with a friend of mine in high school. High school drama. And I don't mean the, the class. I was trying to trap him in a lie. For the sake of my other friend, who I, I, don't, I really don't know why. I, I have no idea. I'm, I'm listening to this thing. And, and not only am I trying to do that, am I repulsed by the fact I'm trying to do that, I hear how I'm talking about my friends at youth group, the disparaging comments I'm making, the language I'm using, and I'm a, I'm a young Christian at this point. I get so offended by what I'm saying that I pop the cassette out and I literally throw it to the dashboard. And I'm, 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 I'm regretting and repenting of what I'm doing on that audio tape. But then I was thinking, the encouragement of that is this. It's not who I am now. Not perfect. I still do stupid things. And I'm probably going to look back 10 years from now and say, man, that was absolutely stupid. I shouldn't have done that. I'll be repenting of the things until the day I die. But the point is this. We might not be able to see how we are growing, but we are growing. John Newton, who was a slave trader who came to know Christ and wrote the hymn Amazing Grace, put it this way, in more eloquent words than I could ever piece together. I am not what I ought to be. I am not what I want to be. I am not what I hope to be in another world. But still, I am not what I once used to be. And by the grace of God, I am what I am. That's what we say. That's what we confess. That's what Philippians 1 6 is saying, I am not what I was. I'm not what I'm really going to be, but I'm not who I used to be. At times we can feel stuck because this is the middle part of the three-act play. And the middle part of the three-act play is the most despairing part where we think it's not going to turn out, that all hope is lost. If you're Star Wars fans, this is Empire Strikes Back, right? This is where Luke gets his hand cut off he finds out, spoiler alert, that Darth Vader is his father. I'm sorry if I ruined that for anybody. Han Solo's in carbonite, and you just feel like it's all gone to pot. And if you stop there, it is despairing. But this is the middle act. And no, no matter how much despair we encounter here, Here is not the third act. The third act is coming. And we join together every Sunday in worship, confessing to one another that that third act is coming. And that the second act does not define us. And it doesn't define our future. Scripture defines our future. God defines our future. 
And we feel like that abandoned skeleton of a building, but God's not going to leave us that way. He will not abandon us. So finally, that third act. What is that third act? He finishes the work he began. Verse 6 makes it clear that he carries that work that he started among us and in us on to completion. When? The day of Christ Jesus. We won't truly be finished until then. But he does promise that sanctification will bring us to that ultimate glorification in Christ. Now, there are a couple of views of sanctification. One moment here. And let me, let me point this out. One moment here. There are views of sanctification that say sanctification is just getting used to our justification. That there won't be really any change and we should just be uh, grounded in what Jesus did on the cross. Yes, we can be grounded in what Jesus did on the cross, but that will change us. There's another version of that called perfectionism that says on this side of heaven, we will be morally perfect. John tells us if we say that we're without sin, the truth is not in us. That also is a wrong view of sanctification. The view of sanctification that Paul has in mind, the New Testament has in mind, is that we are completely justified in God, but sanctification is the process by which he changes us into the image of Christ. And more and more, we will look like him. We will never be perfect this side of heaven. That's what John Newton means when he says, I'm not what I will be, but I'm not what I once was. And you can see that imagery, that cross imagery, that sanctification imagery, here in the word used for completion, which is epitaleo. And in that word, epitaleo is the root teleo, telos, which is end or finished. It's the same word that Jesus cries out from the cross when he says, it is finished. Te telestai. And I will never forget the word te telestai. Because back in the summer of 1998, I was locked in an epic struggle with a beast called Six Week Greek. I entered seminary and voluntarily took two units of Greek in six weeks. So one unit every week. And I thought that was a good idea. But immediately, it began to crush me. I would get up, I'd go to class, I'd do my exercises, I'd go home, I'd do more homework, I'd study for the quiz the next day, I would eat, wave to my wife, study some more, go to sleep, do it all over again. And by the fourth week, I was done. And I learned that I could take my four-week grade and, and take that and do the other two in Jan term, which is a completely different story. Didn't work out like I hoped. But here I am entering seminary and these old feelings of inadequacy of, look, I'm not as good as these other guys that are going to complete the six-week Greek. Who am I to think that if I, can't, if I can't really prevail in my first seminary class, how is this going to go for me over the next three and a half years? And I thought about quitting. And it wouldn't be the, it wouldn't be the last time I thought about it. all these thoughts are going through my mind as I'm heading home after my four-week quiz grade, and I know that I'm going to drop this class. And my wife is there at home with a cake that she's baked, and an M&M's spelled out in Greek, which is cruel, let me just say. 
I'm having to read more Greek, are the words te telestai. It is finished. Tongue in cheek, class is finished. But also a reminder, my significance is not in passing six-week Greek or taking the four-week grade and doing the other two later. My significance is in Jesus Christ. My significance is in the cross. My worth and my value are in Jesus Christ. And he finished that work. And he continues to apply the work he's accomplished in me. And he will continue to apply that work every single day of my life until I draw my last breath. And I'm either glorified in his presence or on that last day when we're all glorified before him. God does not abandon us. Why? Because he abandoned Jesus Christ on the cross for you. We sang this morning about him being the potter and being the artist. It's a beautiful, powerful song. And it reminds me of the words that Michelangelo once said about crafting a statue. He said this, In every block of marble, I see a statue as plain as though it stood before me, shaped and perfect in attitude and action. I have only to hew away the rough walls that imprison the lovely apparition to reveal it to the other eyes as mine see it. The promise of Philippians 1.6 is this. God is hewing away the rough edges of our soul, the rough edges of our hearts. And at the end of that process, he's going to reveal to the whole world this. We are remade and reborn in the image of Jesus Christ. And for eternity, for eternity, we are going to reflect that glory. Zach, I don't feel like that right now. Statistically speaking, there's somebody in this room who came to this room this morning and feels like probably the worst Christian that ever walked the earth. You are not. If you are in him, if you are in Christ, he will finish the work he began in you. He is faithful. Does that mean repentance is not required? Nope, that's not what I said. Repentance is part of that process of hewing away that which is in our heart that needs to be hewed away. But I can promise you this. If you come to Christ in repentance, if you come to the Father in repentance, if you come to the Holy Spirit in repentance, they never say, sorry, we're done with you. 
they say, it is finished. And I will finish you. I will carry you out to completion that my name might be glorified among the nations. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, we come to you as incomplete recreations. We know we're broken and bruised by the fall. And we know that we're broken and bruised by life. Testify to our souls that we do not live in the second act for eternity. That the second act will come to an end. And in the third act, you will be glorified in all the earth and we will share in that glory by reflecting the perfect nature that you transformed us into. Help us to have confidence in that and not in our feelings. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.